Will you bow your heads with me one more time as we pray? Gracious and Holy Father, as we open up the Bible now, as we open up your message to us, God, I pray that you would silence all of the other distractions that are going on in our minds right now. That you would silence the emotions and the feelings that are distracting. That you would teach us how to be fully present to you now. And that you would give us your word and that it would be exactly what we need. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I think studies used to show that when you're trying to get someone's attention, right? Like when we're public speaking, they would say that you have about 30 seconds to capture the audience's attention. And in those 30 seconds, if you don't do it, they're going to tune out the rest of the time. What's not helpful is that today you guys have cell phones, iPads you can look at. So it's even harder. Well, apparently, the last time I looked at some of this research, it's no longer 30 seconds. It's now more like three to six seconds. And you know that's true because when you're watching TV, I mean, how, I mean, there are some of you here, and I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but I've seen other people, they can flip through stuff super quickly because our attention spans are so, like, the window for our attention span is so narrow that it's hard. And what's especially difficult, especially for a pastor, is, I mean, how can I give you my best stuff in the first six seconds? So... What I can say is that this morning, the story we're going to be looking at, it's a parable. It's a story that Jesus tells, but if we listen to it well, and if we apply what it tells us, it has the power to change your life and help you live the most meaningful and abundant life. So we're going to begin with the story in Matthew chapter 25. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it. As always, I read from, as almost always, I read from the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, It is up on the screen this morning, so if you don't have that, we can work with you. Matthew 25. Remember, it's a story that potentially can change your life. And here's what it says. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves or servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. So here's a story about a man who's wealthy enough to be able to give a total of eight talents. In today's equivalence of U.S. dollars, that's almost two million dollars that he entrusts to his servants, okay? But this story isn't about money, all right? So we're going to stop there. This is a story that Jesus is telling, and this is in Matthew chapter 25, and Matthew 24 and 25 are some of the teachings that Jesus talks about as when Jesus leaves, he says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back, I'm going to come back at some point in the future. And so Jesus is sharing these stories to help prepare the disciples, the new Christians, and even you today to teach us how to live well and how to live as we wait for Jesus's return. So the analogy here, and we're just going to break down this analogy, the parable is that, that, God, that Jesus is the man that goes away. And the slaves and servants are all humanity, all people, men and women all around the world. So Jesus is saying he's going away, and it says he's going to be gone for a while. No one knows how long he's going to be. If it doesn't tell us how long Jesus is going to be away, is that the point of the story if it doesn't tell us? No. 
If it was important to Jesus for us to know exactly when he returned, Jesus would have told us. Jesus was extremely clear about a ton of things and then not very clear about a lot of other things. And so as Christians, what we do is we must use the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to give us an interpretive lens as to how we read the Scripture and how we view the world. So Jesus, he's not concerned with how long he's going to be away. But what he is very definite to say is that he leaves this money or these talents to his servants, which is us, with something very specific to do while he is away. Now, another important thing about this is that he gives to each one of these servants, um, to each according to his ability. So what we could imply here is that the one who gets five talents probably is going to be a little bit better at money and investing and understanding how things work. And the one that's given one talent, maybe he's younger, or maybe he just doesn't have as much experience, but the, but the amount isn't what's important. It's that Jesus knows what each person can handle, and that's what Jesus gives to them. To the one who received the five talents, he went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents, all right? So here's what it's telling us. He went right away, but to the one, the one that had five and the one that had three. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So here's a couple of things. So we're, we're, do, we're laying the groundwork for what's going to really, like, really be poignant in a moment. The one who had five and the one who had and the one who had three went off right away, or two talents, I'm sorry. The one, they went off right away. They didn't wait to get all these things in order. They went off right away. They didn't wait until right before the master came back. They didn't wait until they had the credential to do whatever it is that they had to. They went off right away immediately. The owner leaves them something to do, and they go and do it and don't make excuses. So here's the first kind of point you could think about. The longer you wait to do what God is asking you to do, the more excuses you will find not to do it. The longer you wait, the more reasons you will come up with as to why you can't do what God is asking you to do. I'm too young. I don't have the credentials. I don't have enough money. I don't have everything that I need. Just remember this. Jesus was basically a homeless guy, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Jesus hung around with 12 guys, and they walked around, and they lived off the kindness of other people. Jesus didn't need anything to accomplish what he needed because all that mattered was that he was about his father's business, and he wasn't going to let anything get in the way of fulfilling his purpose. The longer you wait the more afraid you will become to be faithful to what God is calling you to do. Faith, by definition, requires risk and what we call that leap of faith, where you're not 100% sure that what you set out to do is going to happen, but you do it anyway because you are convicted that God is calling you to do it. For the Christian, faith is about actively engaging in this world and bringing heaven to earth. Here's what I mean by that. We know that this earth is, 
I mean, the, the, the things going on around us are pretty bad. You see it on the news, you see it on the internet, you see it on Facebook, you see it everywhere. There is a tendency for Christians to say, everything is so terrible, why am I even going to try? It's not going to change anything, right? Things are so bad, Jesus is going to come back soon, so I'm just going to step back and try to protect myself. We don't use those words, but we do. But for a Christian and a person of faith, it's not about finding safety. It's not about going into the mountains and hiding and waiting for Jesus to come back. In fact, for a Christian, faith is about entering into the world around us and being the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. That means in your conversations. That means on social media. That means in church. Yes, and even about the politically charged items that are going on in our world. As Christians, we must not be on the side of this person or on the side of that person, but as Christians, we must find a third way. Because here's the thing, if you're in an argument, and, and I'll, I'm not going to share my position, but if you start an argument about how people aren't doing enough for one sector of people, you're not going to change your mind. And if you're on the other side of the argument that says, well, those people deserve it, they're not going to change their mind. As Christians, we cannot enter into the dialogue just to get mad, just to tell how other people are wrong, but we must be purveyors of God's grace, and we must enter into this in a loving and graceful way where we end up being on everyone's side. Now, I know some of you are saying, oh, you're just, you're part of the problem because you think we're on everyone's side. Here's the thing. Whose side would God be on? If what the Bible says is true, and if God creates everything and everything in it belongs to God, whose side is God on? There is responsibility to be placed on individuals. There is responsibility to play, be placed on people for doing certain things. But as Christians, we are to be purveyors of grace. We are to enter into this dialogue in a loving way, not just to prove that someone else is wrong. I had a whole page and a half of notes to share on that, but I figured I didn't want to be distracting to what we're actually preaching about. I believe that the Holy Spirit will move you to know what to do when the time is right. But for a Christian... Our faith must move us even into treacherous situations in order to share the love of Christ. For the Christian, it's using the gifts, both your talents and your resources, to further the kingdom of heaven. When we enter into divisive language, especially now when it comes to politics, we are not being purveyors of God's grace. When someone once told me that politics is no place for an honest man, honest woman too, you know, because now it's both. But it's the truth. You cannot allow your Christianity and your beliefs and your faith to be hijacked by politics. You are not called. I mean, here's the thing. Vote. Do all that. Get involved. All of that matters. But do not enter into the divisive and horrible rhetoric 
it's easy to point at one person and say, and, and I, do, I do this with my friends, and it's so easy to talk about one person and how bad they are when I realize that maybe the other person has a lot of issues too. As a Christian, we are not called to enter into the divisiveness, but we are called to be purveyors of grace and to share the gospel however that ends up looking. In the end, every single person is in need of grace. So we can point and we can say whatever we want to, whether they deserve it or not, but whatever side of the spectrum you fall on, Remember that just as you need grace, they need grace too. And it's sad that in our country, Christianity has been hijacked by a political system. I believe that as Seventh-day Adventists, we are called to be hope and light and grace in this world. How that works out, I wish I was smart enough to tell you how to do that. I'm just not that smart. I, can't, I don't know. I know that there's unrest in my heart at the things that go on. I know that I shudder and I cringe. It's not for me to tell you what to do, but it's for each one of us to pray and ask God, how do we become a part of the solution and how do we bring your name into this world in a way that will be uplifting? Your responsibility as a servant of Christ is to lift up Christ in word and in action. So when we talk about bringing heaven on earth, it's about living heavenly on earth. It's about trying to live the way Jesus lived and live by the way the scriptures tell us to live in every situation. We can't change everyone's mind about God, but what we hope is that we will change the people around us and their minds about God. I think one of the most difficult things to do or what happens so often is we let our emotions get the best of us. And instead of allowing the Holy Spirit and God to work in us, we let our emotions get the best of us and we just start arguing with people. That's not helping. True evangelism. The word evangelism comes from the Greek and, it mean, and it's from the word that means gospel, the good news. True evangelism is for you to live in such a way that you give honor and glory to God in all that you do. You know, Christianity isn't growing very fast in America. And I think that the reason that Christianity isn't growing fast here is because we have everything that we need. And even if you don't have everything that you need or want, there's ways to get it. There's credit. There's borrowing money. But what has ended up happening here in our country is that we have been distracted from the true work of Christianity by all these other things. It's almost as though we have become Christian light in the way that we live our faith. It's as though we have stepped away from the world around us and we just are waiting for the time that Jesus returns. The problem is this. There are many of us that may live our entire lives waiting for Jesus to return. Some of you who are a little bit older than us, you were probably more certain when you were younger that Jesus was coming in your lifetime. And this is what I've seen people tell me. As I've gotten older, I begin to think maybe he won't come in my lifetime, but I still believe that he will. To be a true Christian is not just to sit back, but faith is active and you must act. Your life, you are a servant of God. 
God has placed gifts and talents in your life, and God is asking you to be faithful with what you have. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, faith is more than information. Faith is more than memorizing your Bible. But it's about the Bible and that information transforming your spirit and transforming and edging your faith on to do something meaningful in this world. It's about being bold and courageous. Faith isn't just belief. It is the actions that your faith produces. And I'm not just talking about sinning less. I know that there has been this debate across, among Christianity for thousands of years, or 2,000 years, and I know that even within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, there has been this debate about whether, you know, faith is really faith or if it has to be backed up by actions, and I think the answer to both of those is yes. See, you are not called to just sin less in your life. We already know that you should sin as least, like the least amount as possible, right? Amen? Like, obviously, that's, you don't even need the Bible to tell you that because you know it within your soul that when you do things that are destructive and they go against God's will, it changes you. So we know that we must do our best to not sin. But faith isn't just for that. Faith is telling us to get off of our couches, out of our comfort zones, and do more in the name of Jesus. Having a relationship with God is more than belief and feeling good. In fact, it makes us uncomfortable and forces us to do what we might not want to do. James chapter 2 says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but you do not have works? Can faith save you? Oftentimes, the conversation ends here. They'll say, you see, faith alone isn't enough for your salvation, but that's not what's going on in this passage. That's not what James is actually saying. Otherwise, it would contradict Scripture. But here's what it is saying, and this is what people forget. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? What, of what good is that? You know how I've been saying for the last 15 minutes that your faith must produce actions? You see, the debate that we have gotten into is, is, based, on a, is based on not reading the entire text. The truth is, is that your faith is about actively pursuing the will of God in everything that you do. So you can tell someone, oh, peace be with you. May you have everything you want. You can say all the right words. But just, if, just because you say the right words doesn't actually mean that your faith is more than just a good feeling. So, by, so faith by itself, if it has no works, again, if faith isn't moving you to do good, and remember the example that it gives us, what is the example that it gives us? To do something for who? Yourself? No. The example that the Bible gives us in this, in this passage is that your faith must, by definition, affect other people positively. All right, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you your faith. To which we say, yes. Faith in God, faith in Jesus, by definition, must produce, and must produce in you the desire 
to do good. That's the point of faith. I'm going to skip over this one, okay? that okay? No, I'm not. Look at the time. It's only, you guys are in for it. Here we go. Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is talking to religious people. So in a sense, if, G, if this was written to us today, instead of it saying scribes and Pharisees, it would say maybe pastors and Christians. That's legitimately what it would say today. So it says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier things of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. When Jesus, okay, this is not Pastor Dave, this is not anyone else, but when Jesus talks about what's truly important, he says, look, tithing is good. Like, yeah, that's good to tithe. Tithing is a way that we trust God and say, God, you've given so much. I want to, not that I'm giving back, but I'm just making right. Like, I am giving back to you because I trust you. And so, so what Jesus is saying is like, look, the religious things, going to church and prayer and tithing and serving in the church, those things are important. But he says the weightier matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faith. The weightier, the more important things of the scripture, and when he says law, he's talking about the Bible, are the things that it calls you to do on behalf of others. It's so easy for us, like I said, in America, because as bad as things sometimes sound like they are, for most of us, things are pretty good. For most of us, we live pretty safely. For most of us, we don't worry about a lot of things. Last night when I came home, I came home at around 3 in the afternoon, no, like 4.30 in the afternoon. I, was, I had been at the hospital. I was tired, put my keys in, came in. I don't know. I read. I did all kinds of stuff, finally went to bed, woke up this morning, I'm on my way out the door to come to church, and I'm looking for my keys. Like, hashtag, you know, first world problems, right? I was looking for my keys. I live like five blocks away. I could walk, but I started to kind of freak out a little bit. Where were my keys? They were in my door, in the handle, all night. Yeah. I made sure it was locked. <laughs> I didn't know. The point of that story is for most of us in America, for most of us, not for everyone, I understand that, things are pretty good. Things are pretty safe. And so we, we kind of fall into this lull of, well, I'm coming to church and I'm reading my Bible every day and I'm giving tithe and I'm giving offering and I'm a good religious person. And God loves that. Like God, I, I believe that the best way to be spiritual is to be religious. That's just, we can talk about that another day. But that is not the entirety of our relationship with God. Our relationship with God and our faith, we must strive towards justice and mercy and faith. All of those things affect other people. All right, so we're getting somewhere here. Matthew 25, we're going back to the story. The master comes back. He says, after a long time, the master whose slaves came and settled accounts with them, and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said, Well done, good and trustworthy or faithful servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This one, he, he doubled the, the money. Again, this story isn't about money, and we're going to see in a moment, but for, for example's purpose, he doubles it, right? It's 100% return. 
And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Right? So these are good stories. If you're faithful, you enter into the into the joy of your master. Now, this is not earning. This is not about you doing things to earn your salvation. It's that if you are doing these things out of faith, you already are saved because you understand that as a Christian, you are not just given truth, but you are given truth so that you can affect the world around you. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest." So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For, all, for to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. I'm going to pause here for a second. Remember, this isn't about money. This isn't why poor people are poor because God says take away from them. No, that's not about that. Here's what this is about. The third slave, right? These slaves are representative of all humanity. Many commentators would say that this is actually about Christians, that the servants or the slaves in the story represent Christianity. Some Christians will go about their father's business, meaning God's business, and will continually be living and expending themselves on behalf of others, and some will not. That the idea behind this is that those who are working already understand what it means to be saved, and they're working because they have received mercy because they have received grace, and so they want to give that to others. And to those, Jesus is saying, you will enter into my joy because you understand what I've been wanting you to do. For the third slave, he doesn't even give a reason why he didn't do it. He, the reason is because he's blaming the master. You're unfair. You're not kind. I was afraid of you, so I hid. The idea behind some of this, because this is about the time when Jesus will come back and make all things new, the, the, the teaching is that some will enter into this eternity with God and others will not. It's not a teaching that I personally like, but I know that when Jesus says things, we have to deal with them. The worst part is this. He says, as for the worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, this is not about you earning your salvation by doing good things. It is about you living out your salvation by doing good. Your faith is more than your belief. So, I want to just end with three short examples. Because what this teaching was all about is how do we live as we wait for the return of Jesus? And the answer is we live by being about our Father's business of lifting Christ up everywhere we go, entering into into situations that perhaps we would rather stay away from and living as the aroma of Christ. And the teaching here is what is at your disposal? 
You know, we are all given talents. You are all given ability according to what God knows you can handle. You know, some of you are saying, well, I can't preach, or I can't sing, or I can't this. But the point of this story isn't that we're all preachers or that we're all musicians. It's what is in your hand. How can you use what is in your possession? For some of you, it means be faithful as a mom. Be faithful as a father. Be faithful at work. Be faithful at school. Be faithful. Part of being a Christian is being faithful to where you are and the work that God has given you. So I have three examples. One funny one, one good one. I mean, one normal one. Here's a picture of a toilet. All right, a couple more seconds. When I was in seminary, I worked at Olive Garden. And, you know, we all love Olive Garden, right? Right now it's buy one, get one, take home. Yeah, all right. You're welcome. Invite me. Okay, so... Okay, so I worked at Olive Garden. You know, being a server is a hard job, okay? You know what? You live off tips, so you have to be nice even when you want to be mean. Whatever. Here's why it matters when it talks about being faithful. There was one employee restroom that we were allowed to use. I think it's still there, Brett? Okay. It's one. And it, and it got plugged up. Not, 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 I didn't do it. Like, it was... And, and then the water started going over. Oh, man. And it was next to our break room where people eat. So it was gross. No one wanted to do it. No one wanted to go in there and plunge it. And I was like, man, as a Christian, I know I, know I have to. I, this was literally what I had going on in my head. Like, I wish I didn't. Like, I, didn't feel, I wish I wasn't a Christian. So anyway, so I go. Here's the backstory: is there had been a lot of pastors or people in seminary who worked there. But they had a, we had a bad, um, a bad reputation because they weren't the nicest. So already we had this kind of handicap as seminary students. People were like always judging us because they thought we were judging them and trying to convert everybody and telling them how they were wrong. That's how it was when I was there. So it was, it was very tedious. So I was like, fine, I'll do it. So I went, I grabbed the plunger. I asked, for the, I asked the supervisor for a plunger. He's like, what do you need it for? I showed him and I, so I was about to go in and he was like, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. I was like, thank goodness. Like, Here's how this story matters. I was trying to be faithful, not just to my faith, but trying to be faithful to the work that was in front of me. After that day, this was like the harshest of the managers. I don't think Brent knows him. He wasn't there anymore. But but he was a tough, tough guy. Guess what? But by me showing my willingness to do something that was gross, you know what he ended up doing? He would invite me to sit at his table to eat with him while I was supposed to be working. And everyone was like, what did you do? Is he your uncle? Because, like, he was dark. Is he? I'm like, no. See, when you're faithful in little, I do believe that God will reward you with more to do. Not he will reward you, period. If you are faithful, according to the story, God will give you more to do and bigger things. But if you're not faithful, even in with the little bit, in your relationships, in your work, in your school, God's like, if you're not faithful just because it's not a glamorous job, why do you think I'm going to give you something even bigger that you might not be able to handle? And so you must be faithful. Here's another picture. Sorry, not a Patriots fan. But this is the best illustration. The guy in the middle, starting quarterback, he cheated, so he's suspended for four games. The guy on the number 10 was the number two quarterback, right? So if the first guy gets hurt, if 12 gets hurt, number seven goes in. If number seven gets hurt, I mean 10 gets hurt, then number seven goes in. 
Well, that actually happened. Number 12 is out for four games. Number 10 comes in, does awesome. He was faithful being a part of the system. He did what he was supposed to do. There was no, I mean, if number 12 is healthy, number 10 is never going to, never. Number 12 doesn't fail. He's like the best. But Tom Brady gets hurt, then Garoppolo comes in, he's successful, then he gets hurt, I think last week, was it last week? So the third string quarterback, look, you don't win with third string quarterbacks. You don't, unless you're lucky or your defense is the best. Number seven, is it Brissett? He comes in and they win. And they don't just win by a little, like I think it was 28 to zero, 27 to zero. And you know what he says? He was like, look, no, you know, you never, I think is what he said, I'm paraphrasing, you don't expect to go in and play on a weekly basis, but you prepare every single week like you are going to play. Because when you're given that opportunity, you don't get that second chance. And so for Christians, you are to be faithful, even if it doesn't feel like what you are doing is making a difference. You are not called to take into account the things that you do. You are just simply called to be faithful to your Christianity and your faith in all that you do. Two more illustrations and then we're done. Is that okay? You guys can't really say no. <laughs> my friend, my best, one of my, my be, he's my best friend. My, he's a teacher in, in the city of Paris. And um, educationally, not the best educational systems. Um, demographically, um, people, a lot of people living in poverty. So what ends up happening is when you bring these kinds of kids to school, it's really hard for them to focus. It's hard if they don't have solid um, family units. So it's difficult, all right? So my teacher, you know, he's, you know, he's a Christian, right? He grew up Seventh-day Adventist. He has been faithful. He has been faithful to do, to do his job well. Sure, he complains at times. Sure, all that. He's not the best Christian. I get it. None of us are, okay? Because some of you know him here. <laughs> but here's the thing. This is what these students said to him. says, you have been there for me since freshman year. Well, he told me this morning, because I asked if I could use this, um, the, girl went, the girl's parents went through a divorce their freshman year. So it's been really painful for her. She is now a 4.2 student her senior year. It says, you have continuously motivated me to be my best in both academics and in volleyball. You truly believe that I am capable of doing great things. I can always go to talk to you, and I know that you will support me and help me out. You are truly a real one. The next one says, you are my inspirational teacher because you are really kind and funny. You make me feel more comfortable than, than I am with other teachers. I truly appreciate that when I don't understand something, you take your time to help me with it. Thank you so much, Mr. Torres. He is being faithful to the job. Teachers are a thankless job oftentimes. You guys know that. He has given students that statistically, and he will tell you this, statistically don't have a chance at going to college, but he doesn't give up on them. He does everything that he can to be able to help them get to that place in their life. And so then the final illustration, the final illustration, some of you know Kara, right? That's my girlfriend. She's a social worker, and she does a lot of post-adoption counseling. What that means is she works with families who have adopted kids. There is one family in particular that she's working with that is just, it's just a sad, sad story. The little girl, she's 15 now, has been to a tremendous amount of trauma and a ton of grief. And it always hurts her and it always bothers her, and this is talking about Kara, when she leaves that family because the parents just don't get it. The parents hadn't been to, through trauma. The parents haven't been through what this little girl has gone through. And if I told you, and I'm not going to tell you because it's Sabbath morning and it's terrible. 
But if you knew what this girl had gone through, it would literally break your heart. And so now the parents are sending this girl away for 60 days to kind of reformat her. I don't, that's not the word they use, but. And Kara, when she talks to me, she's just like, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I can, and the parents want to blame the child. And we have this conversation that you can only be faithful to the job that is set before you. And even if you cannot see the silver lining, you still do it. This 15-year-old girl has opened up to Kara. And she has told her that you, she told her, you make me feel more loved than anyone has ever made me feel. It may not change the world, but if you are faithful, if you are a faithful servant of the Most High God, it's not about getting accolades, it's not about getting awards, it's not about achievements, it's about being faithful to what God has placed you in, to what God has placed in your heart, and you do it out of love and out of faith for the God who has forgiven even your worst sins. Because we believe that we can change the world that is around us, that we are called to live heavenly in a very hellish world, and one day God will come and he will renew and redeem all this. But until that day, the Bible is clear that you and I are to be the hands of Jesus in this world. Amen.